There was once uh, a defendant uh, who was on trial for murder, and there was strong evidence that he was guilty. Uh, the problem was there was no corpse. Uh, there was no body. And in the defence's closing statement, uh, the lawyer, knowing that his client would probably be convicted, resorted to a trick. Uh, the lawyer said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for you all. And he looked at his watch. And he said, within one minute, the person presumed dead in this case will walk into the courtroom. He looked towards the courtroom door. The jurors, somewhat stunned, all looked on eagerly. A minute passed and nothing happened. Finally, the lawyer said, actually, I made up the previous statement. But you all looked on with anticipation. Therefore, I put to you that you have a reasonable doubt in this case as to whether anyone was killed and insist that you return a verdict of not guilty. The jury, clearly confused, retired to deliberate. A few minutes later, the jury returned and pronounced a verdict of guilty. But how, inquired the lawyer, you must have had some doubts. I saw all of you stare at the door. The jury foreman replied, oh, we looked, but your client didn't. The client did not have any doubts because he knew his own guilt. Now, I just tell that brief little story, just mainly because it amused me. But secondly, because it teaches us something about doubt. And doubt really is the theme of these verses that we read, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. I don't know if you noticed how many times uh, the doubt of the disciples regarding the resurrection of Christ is mentioned. Now look at verse 11. It says, When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, that's Mary Magdalene, they did not believe. Uh, Look again at verse 13. Uh, In verse 12, we're told that two people, almost certainly the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus, They saw Christ and told the disciples. It says in verse 13, they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. And then again, if you look at verse 14, it says, later Christ appeared to the eleven as they sat at table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And then Jesus himself speaks in verse 15. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Uh, Just in these few short verses, we're taught the importance of faith, of belief. And the disciples are rebuked for their doubt, for their lack of faith. And in these final few verses of Mark's gospel, uh, the emphasis is on showing us, on teaching us that we can believe what we have been taught. Uh, 
The resurrection of Christ is not just a fable based on hearsay, but it's something we can stake our lives upon. And what I'd like to do for the rest of our time this evening is just look at three reasons uh, from this passage why we can trust and why we can believe in the resurrection of Christ. And you'll notice that they will get uh, increasingly more complicated. I'm sorry about that. Um, But if you like, uh, the different points this evening will depend upon your level of scepticism. If you've got a low level of cynicism regarding the resurrection of Christ, then the first point will be sufficient for you. If your doubt's a little bit deeper, perhaps the second one will help. And if you are very sceptical, then perhaps the third will finally convince you. So we're going to look from this passage, this final passage of Mark's Gospel, how we can know the resurrection of Christ is true, that it really happened. And the first way is by realising, by understanding the signs that supported the message of the resurrection of Christ. Did you notice what Jesus said to his disciples in verse 17? In verse 17, uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples said, These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. A little bit later, in fact, the very last verse of the book, it says, They went out, they being the apostles, went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. So Christ himself through this passage of scripture, is teaching that the testimony of the disciples, particularly regarding the risen Christ, was confirmed by signs and wonders, by miraculous events. Now, I'm going to show my hand here because some uh, Christians uh, debate over these verses, and I'm sure... You're very aware of it, but this is what I believe, and I'll show why I believe it in a moment. Uh, But I believe when Jesus said these words, he was speaking specifically to the apostles, uh, the apostles who he chose and who he sent out. Um, To be clear, I believe God can heal, for example. I believe he does heal. And we, perhaps all of us, have uh, stories and examples where we have seen God do just that uh, in our own experience. I'm in favor of uh, laying uh, hands on people and praying for them that God would heal them. Uh, I believe God is still alive and he is still able to perform miracles in this world. But I do not believe that the signs as Jesus describes them here are being performed by all of God's people today. 
And the first reason for that is simply an observational one. And the observational one is these things don't seem to be happening en masse. I'll say it again, I believe God does, can and does heal. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be the case that these signs follow those who believe. Um, do believers never die of snake bites? Well, I'll be honest, I'll, I can't give you an exact example of one who has, but I'm 99% sure that someone somewhere, some believer somewhere has died of a snake bite, and I would not advise you to test this yourself. Uh, can God save you from a poison of a snake bite? Absolutely. Has God done it? I'm almost certain he has and still does today. But the point is, I don't think we have that guarantee today. God, Christ, gave these promises to his apostles. And of course, we have instances of this in the Acts of the Apostles, don't we? Uh, remember Paul, shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And as he picked up sticks to put on the fire, uh, a snake disturbed by the fire jumps out and bites, uh, I think it says he bites his hand or bites him. And the natives are sure he's going to die. But Paul just shakes off the snake into the fire and he lives and that is a direct fulfillment of what Christ said here. Uh, that's the observational reason. Uh, but there is a biblical reason as well. Uh, if you have your Bibles, it might be helpful to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. And in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, uh, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, uh, said this. He said, truly... The signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Paul refers to the miraculous signs and wonders and he calls them the signs of the apostles. And if you look at the book of Acts, it's an interesting thing to note that it's the apostles who perform the miracles and those who the apostles have laid their hands on. Uh, there does seem to be a diminishing of those signs as the apostles uh, grew older and started to die out. Uh, so all that is simply to say that I believe Jesus is speaking in these verses primarily of the apostles, but in no way do I want to undermine the ability of God to perform miracles today. I just do not believe they function as signs and wonders in the exact way that Jesus is speaking of here. He's telling the apostles, I'm going to confirm my message to you, my chosen ambassadors, with signs and wonders. And if you want to see more details of that, you can read the book of Acts and you can see how precisely Jesus did that. If you just want just one further evidence for it, did you notice verse 20 what it said? It says, and notice the tense here. It says, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Did you notice it's in past tense? He doesn't say, we are preaching everywhere, the Lord working through us, confirming our word through the accompanying signs. Verse 20 is speaking in the past tense, I believe, because it's referring to the witness of the apostles. 
But that's the first reason we're given here, why we should believe the testimony about the resurrection of Christ, because it was confirmed by the miracles that we read of in the book of Acts and elsewhere. Those miracles confirmed that the apostles were speaking the truth, that they were truly sent from God. That's the first reason this passage gives us. Uh, But there is a second reason. Because if you're very cynical or if you're more sceptical, you might say, well, that's all very well for them living back then. But we can't see those miracles today. We can't see Peter and uh, his shadow, as it says in the book of Acts, passing by a sick person and then being healed. That was 2,000 years ago. We can't see it for ourselves, so this means nothing to us. We can't see the signs, so how can we believe? But there's a second reason as well. Uh, Look at verse 14. Uh, This is after Christ has appeared to Mary Magdalene and the women and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it says in verse 14, later... He appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Did you notice why Jesus rebuked them? He rebuked them because they did not believe believe those who had seen him after he had risen. At this point, the apostles hadn't seen Jesus risen from the dead. They hadn't seen that miraculous event. All they knew was actually what we know, which is the testimony of those who had seen him. But Jesus clearly believed that was sufficient. They should have believed Mary Magdalene. They should have believed their two friends, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They should have believed the women. It's not always the case that we should trust everything we hear. Obviously, that would be nonsense. But there are instances where it is wrong for us to doubt the word of another person if we don't have good reason for disbelieving them. If we're confident there's someone who is reliable, who is trustworthy, and who cares for us and would not want to deceive us, then we should trust them. And the apostles should have believed the other disciples, the women, the two on the road to Emmaus, because they would have no reason to lie. And they are rebuked for refusing to believe. The apostles couldn't have said, oh, but we need to see a miracle. We need to see a sign first. Jesus would say to them, no, you've seen enough. You've heard enough. That should be sufficient for you. In fact, Jesus says, in a sense, the opposite. He doesn't say a sign or miracle is what you need. Actually, He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you remember how he said that to Thomas? Um, Remember the story of doubting Thomas? It's a bit unfair. We call Thomas doubting 
Thomas. He, that's not the only thing he did in his life. That's how we remember him. But you remember doubting Thomas, how he said uh, after he heard the news from his fellow apostles that Christ was alive. And he said uh, to them, uh, if I can find uh, the passage, uh, it says uh, in verse 25, the other disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Other source Thomas said, unless I see the miracle, I'm not going to believe. I need to see a sign. I need to see it with my own eyes. Well, eventually, eight days later, Jesus did appear to Thomas and he spoke to him. He said in verse 37, reach your finger here, Thomas, and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus says it's more blessed to believe the testimony of those who have seen him than it is to see him for ourselves. And you might wonder why. Why is that? We'd all love to see a miracle, wouldn't we? We'd all love to see the risen Christ. How are we more blessed to have not seen and yet believe? I think we're told uh, by Jesus himself earlier in the gospel. Do you remember when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And the disciples answered, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter said, we believe you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said in response to Simon, to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said to Peter, your trust in me, Your belief in me demonstrates that the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, that he has opened your eyes. Now, this is one of the dangers with signs and wonders. Uh, In John's Gospel, we're told of many people who saw the wonders and believed. But we're told, just a few verses later, they fell away and they stopped following Christ. They saw the miracle, they saw the wondrous event, And they followed Christ. In some cases, they wanted the food. They wanted the bread. They wanted the uh, glory. But as Jesus started to say and do things they didn't like, they drifted away. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen, but the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes to see who he is. So we do not need miracles in order to believe. God has provided those. We read them in the book of Acts. But they are not essential for faith. What we need is the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see and believe the testimony of those who have seen Christ. Uh, Let me ask you that question this evening. Uh, Do you trust Mary Magdalene? Do you trust Peter? Do you trust 
John? Do you trust Paul? All these people who claimed, who claim to have seen the risen Christ. If you don't believe them, you're calling them liars. What reason have you to believe that they are lying? Because as it were, on Judgment Day, you'll be presented with that question. Jesus, I'm not sure if he'll use this exact question, but he could say something along the lines of, why did you not trust my eyewitnesses? What convinced you that they were liars? And so many people will not have a leg to stand on because most people don't bother to read it in the first place. They don't honestly examine if Mark is telling the truth, if Peter is telling the truth, if any of the, Old Test- the New Testament authors are telling the truth. And Jesus will rebuke them as he rebuked the disciples. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So that's the second reason we should believe that Jesus rose from the dead, because we have reliable eyewitness testimony. Firstly, God confirmed it by signs and wonders. Secondly, he has given us reliable eyewitness testimony. But there is a third way as well, and this is the most complicated by trust. You will stay with me. Because again, a cynic might turn around and say, well, that's all very well. Uh, But Peter, for example, had Mary Magdalene right in front of him. He knew Mary Magdalene. He knew the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So yes, he perhaps should have trusted them because he knew them. He could test whether they were liable or not. But we live 2,000 years on. How do we know that the words of this book are even eyewitness testimonies? How do we know that someone didn't just come along later, perhaps even hundreds of years later, and just make it up? We can't see the women giving the testimony from their own lips. We can't see the apostles declaring what they have seen and heard just days after it happened. We have to rely on words written in a book. How do we know these words are accurate, uh, an accurate testimony of what they really said. And there is an answer to that as well, even in these verses. As I say, this will get a little complicated, and I debated whether to go into this or not, but we'll see how we go. But there is a certain amount of debate, and some of you may know this, about the verses that we have read this evening. Uh, You may even have a Bible which has verses 9 to 20 in brackets, there may be a footnote which says something along the lines of, these verses are not found in certain manuscripts. And what that's simply saying is this, uh, that throughout church history, these verses in Mark have been a bit of a puzzle. Uh, the Bible was written before a printing press existed. And so the Bible, if you wanted to read the Bible, it had to be copied and those copies had to be copied, and those copies had to be copied, had to be copied, and etc., until printing press was invented, and then it could be printed. Um, so there are thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament, and some of them have these verses in it, and some of them don't. And as I said, there have been big arguments in church history about it. 
And some people say, well, if there's doubt about these verses, then we can't trust any of it. But you realize that the exact opposite is the case. This is where you need to track with me, because that might sound nonsense. But if, again, track with me here, if all the copies of the New Testament that we had were all exactly identical, that wouldn't point to a miracle. That would point to what? It would point to collusion. Let me put it this way. Uh, Imagine you're a teacher in a classroom and you're marking the exam papers of the students and you're, um, say it's an essay, and you suddenly see two students with two essays and the essays are identical. If you're a good teacher, you're not going to say, wow, it's a miracle. (laughs) These two students wrote exactly the same thing. Now what you're going to say is, this is a scam. These students have copied one another. And that's what people would say if all the copies of the New Testament that we have, if they were all identical. But they're not, because they were copied by human beings. And actually, the vast array of manuscripts we have points to its reliability, because what it proves is that there was no collusion. You can trust the Bible you have. The very fact that there is a degree of argument about this passage simply shows us how reliable the rest is. Now, if you want my judgment about it for what it's worth, um, I believe these verses are scripture because they have been preserved for us. Uh, Every Bible you look at will have these verses included, and God has preserved them for us. And that's why we've been able to read them throughout church history. Um, A few manuscripts they're not in. I have no idea why. Perhaps those uh, copyists were not very good at their job. Uh, But whatever the reason, what it does show us is that there was no collusion in the early church. There was no big conspiracy to make sure everything lined up. We can rely on the manuscripts we had. You may have heard this before, and again, this is not something I'd normally uh, share in a sermon, but uh, it's interesting nonetheless. Uh, I don't know if you know how many manuscripts exist uh, for Caesar's Gallic Wars. Um, Caesar, he wrote these, this book, The Gallic Wars, and my understanding is that there are about nine copies, uh, nine or ten good copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars, and the earliest of them was written 900 years after Caesar lived. But nobody argues that Caesar wrote the Gallic Wars. That's in comparison to the New Testament, or parts of the New Testament, where we have 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, 9,300 manuscripts in various other ancient languages, including Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopic, Coptic, and Armenian. And some of them date almost back 
to the time when the first gospel was written or the letters of the New Testament were written. And God, again, as it were, on Judgment Day, could say to the sceptic and say, why did you trust that Caesar wrote his Gallic Wars and yet you did not trust that the apostles wrote the New Testament? Even though the evidence that we have a reliable New Testament far outweighs any document of antiquity. Again, if you want to look into that more, you can. It is a complicated subject. The point is simply this, that what we have in Scripture gives us more than enough evidence that what we have is a reliable uh, copy, a reliable uh, passing on of what the apostles truly said in the past. I'll give just one more example. Have you ever wondered uh, why the resurrection accounts seem somewhat different? Have you ever noticed that? Um, if you want to go, go home and you can look it up for yourself. Uh, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the way they describe the resurrection is not identical. Some mention some things, other people mention other things, and uh, they seem at times to almost contradict and again, the skeptics point to it and they say, ah, evidence that it's not true. Now, I remember listening to a judge uh, talking once, and he was saying about how what he does when he listens to eyewitness testimony. And when he listens to eyewitness testimony, he is looking for differences. Because if he hears the same phrase repeated, or if he hears identical stories he starts to wonder, hmm, maybe this isn't true. Maybe these eyewitnesses have been talking together. But when the testimonies are different, when they emphasize different elements, he says, ah, I'm confident now that these people are reliable, that they haven't colluded with one another. And that's exactly what we have in the Gospels. We have Matthew writing of the resurrection from his perspective. We have Mark writing from the resurrection from his perspective, Luke from his perspective, and John from his perspective. And we all know, don't we, if you talk to four different people about the same event, uh, even if they're completely reliable and honest people, you will not get exactly the same story from each of them. Their stories will harmonise, but each will emphasise different things. And that is all we have in the New Testament. And it gives us confidence that this is true. It's not a conspiracy. It's not cleverly devised fables, as Peter calls it in his letter, his first letter. We can trust what we read in our Bibles. God has preserved it for us to read, and he will preserve it till the end of time. So those are the three reasons, and again, uh, as you can see, they get slightly more complicated each time. But trustfully, it helps us to see that we have a firm foundation to stand on. We can trust that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. And that's really the question I want to leave you with this evening. All of us. Uh, I really hope for all of us the answer is yes. But do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? 
Do you stake your life upon the resurrection of Christ? Or are you still like the apostles? Not sure. Doubting. Wondering, maybe it happened, but maybe it didn't. Well, if that's you, dig into Mark's gospel. Uh, We listen to the messages we've been sharing over these last few weeks and months and listen to what Mark says and pray for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to what is really there. And you will gain a firm confidence in Christ. You will gain a firm confidence and that itself will overflow in love for others and it will make your Christian life uh, far more powerful as a result if you are no longer limping and doubting but boldly expressing the truth that God teaches us and tells us to preach. And with those thoughts in mind, I've chosen as our final hymn, number 700. Number 700 in our hymn book. And it's really a prayer, a hymn which is a prayer of commitment to Christ. Uh, A prayer to ask him to help us to serve him to the end. It's 700. O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Be thou forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not fear the battle if thou art by my side, nor wander from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. So we'll stand to sing our final hymn, number 700. <laughs>